We have been in Galatians 5 for a little while, an uh, extra month if you, if you include the weeks I didn't preach on Galatians 5 while I was on vacation. And finally, we come to the actual list. It's the long-anticipated day after we've been covering concepts from Galatians 5. Uh, what is the flesh? What is the spirit? What is this battle between the flesh and the spirit? So forth. We've been dealing conceptually with things in Galatians 5. But this morning, we come to the actual list. And this morning, we are looking at love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And as I mentioned last week, Paul really could have just simply said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and left it at that. Since, and this brings us to our first point, since love is the sum total of all duties. Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, that if, hypothetically, all someone ever did was love God and neighbor, he would earn eternal life. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, have you never entered a Reformed church and heard that you're justified by faith alone, apart from works? Right? No, that's not, that's not the way Jesus answers, is it? What does Jesus say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now we know, of course, that no one has done this. And therefore, even if theoretically you could do this perfectly from this day forward, you would still be guilty of sin because of yesterday. Right? This is why we preach and we teach that no one is justified by their works. No one can be good enough for God. Because it's not possible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're already sinners. Even if somehow you can figure out how to stop today, you're still already a sinner. And so this is why we preach and we teach that no one can be justified by the works of the law. But what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that, the, that simply loving God and loving neighbor is actually a sufficient standard of righteousness. And that if someone did simply love God and love neighbor perfectly, uniformly, consistently, with no wavering, with no omission, with no commission uh, of the opposite, that yes, do this and you will live. This is what God expects of mankind. This is God's holy standard. Simply to love God and neighbor. And so... Of course, again, to reiterate, no one can do that ever since Adam's fall into sin. And even if we could do so perfectly from today, henceforth, we would still bear yesterday's guilt and we'd miss heaven by a mile. But hypothetically, all that is needed in God's eyes for righteousness is love for God and neighbor. So there's a lot of truth then to the statement that's often repeated in Christian circles. Just love God and neighbor and do what you want. The Holy Spirit 
is simply making us loving people. That's the sum total of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives with respect to our sanctification. We could summarize what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives with respect to our sanctification by saying He's making us loving. And that's synonymous with saying that the Holy Spirit is making us holy. Because we've just seen from Luke 10 that, that to be loving is to be holy. And that's also synonymous with saying that G the Holy Spirit is making us like Jesus. Because Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind through the course of his 33 years here on planet Earth and his neighbor as himself. And so achieved for us in the very doing of that the righteousness that we need for justification before God. Jesus was holy precisely because he was loving. And when we become loving, we become like Jesus, we become holy. This is all saying the same thing. Now, obviously, these sorts of questions arise at this point. Well, what even is love? What does it look like to be a loving person? Let's begin moving towards the definition of love and, and a working understanding of what growing in love would look like. First, by considering the issue negatively, what love is not. We've already seen that love is the sum total of all duties. It follows that the opposite of love is the antithesis of all duty toward God. And what might the opposite of love be? On this point, Augustine wrote that our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, is so deeply curved in on itself. It so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things even God, for its own sake. Luther, many years later, Augustine was late uh, 300s, early 400s, and Luther, writing in the 16th century, expands on this idea in his lectures on Romans, saying, Scripture describes man as so curved in on himself that he, not, that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes. And in all things, seeks only himself. So there is obviously the, the self-centered, irreligious, and, and blatantly immoral person who thinks only of himself, perhaps how he might be gratified sexually by using another, or how he might be enriched at the expense of another, whether by extortion or bribery or theft or whatever, or how in any other way he might increase his own pleasure, his own status, his own comfort, even if it means pain and suffering for others. Everyone knows this selfish person curved in on himself and seeking his own good at the expense of others and doesn't care. Everyone knows that caricature, right? 
Such a man is incurvatus in se, as both Augustine and Luther phrased it in Latin, which means curved in on himself. Curved in on himself. Yet according to both Augustine and Luther, and if you think about it, according to even your anecdotal observation, according to an honest look in the mirror, as well as according to the rest of Scripture, although it doesn't use that phrase, curved in on himself, everyone, not just that caricature, but everyone is curved in on himself. There is even the self-centered religious and ostensibly moral person in which this incurvatus insane principle is so active that he thinks even in religion, even about religion, in terms of how he might increase his status in the religious community. Or how religion might be for him a means of financial gain or whatever else. Such a man is also incurvatus in say, or in English, curved in on himself. So whether the irreligious caricature of a selfish person curved in on himself or, or the religious person ostensibly good, ostensibly moral, but who is doing everything with self for self-aggrandizement or self-improvement or whatever the case may be. And anywhere on that spectrum, every human being, apart from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, tends to be curved in on himself. And this incurvatus insane is the root cause of all that is wrong with the world. It is the antithesis of all duty and the very principle of sin. So many people, all too often, we go through our lives thinking ultimately about ourselves. What do I want? What do I need? What would glorify me? How could, I be, how could I be more glorious? What would enrich me? What would bring me pleasure? What would bring me comfort? What would make me feel good? How could I ease my suffering? And then we just go ahead and we act in accordance with the conclusions we've drawn after considering questions like these, with no checks and balances. And so we're surrounded by and we're personally affected by conflict, heartbreak, trauma, injury and death, insecurity, mistrust, and so forth. All because either we ourselves and or the people around us are curved in on ourselves or themselves. 
It's this being curved in on ourselves that causes all of this pain and heartache and heartbreak. Lying and being lied to. Stealing and being stolen from. Using and being used. Betraying and being betrayed. Harming and being harmed. Neglecting and being neglected. Breaking promises and having promises broken. And so on and so forth. These are familiar concepts to us, sadly. But these are familiar concepts to us in this curved in on ourselves world. These are familiar concepts to us because this is a curved in on ourselves world. These are familiar concepts to us because we are curved in on ourselves people. And our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends and our family members are curved in on themselves people too. I'm confident that this incurvatus in say, this being curved in on yourself, is the opposite of love. Because 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 is the closest definition, closest thing to a definition of love that we can find in the Bible. And being curved in on oneself is the opposite. See, if we can follow the logic of John's statement in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, we can see that love is seeking the good of others, even at great cost to yourself. 1 John 4 10 says this. For those of you who don't have it memorized. Thank you. Delinquents. <laughs> Just kidding, I don't even have to look it up. <laughs> First John chapter 4 and verse 10 says this. In this is love. So what are we about to hear? What love is, right? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And gave and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in other words, if you want to know what love looks like, don't look at the way that you love. In fact, don't even look at the way you love the most ultimate object of your love, which is God, if you are a Christian. Right? To be a Christian, by definition, means that, that your life has been reoriented in such a way that now God is the ultimate object of your love. Right? Because we know that Jesus said, if anyone loves his father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. Right? We know that, that Jesus said, whoever uh, wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what, so what I'm saying from the teaching of Jesus, we know that the very definition of being a Christian is reorienting our lives in such a way 
that loving God and following Jesus is the most ultimate thing now in our lives. We don't do that perfectly, but that is, by definition, part and parcel of being a genuine Christian. So God is the most ultimate object of the Christian's love. But John says, you want to see what love is? Don't look at the way you love God. So even our love, oriented towards the most ultimate object of our love, is not even a good case study of what love is. Rather, if you want to know what love looks like, look at God loving you. Look at God sending His Son to be the propitiation for your sins. That will show you what love is. Do we improve God's life? Do we enrich God? Do we make God more comfortable? Do we ease His suffering and pain? Of course, none of these things is true. Quite the opposite, if we can put it that way, as, as a manner of speaking, since God is immutable and impassable, right? But if we can put it this way, we cause God great discomfort. We impoverished God. We didn't improve God's life, but we murdered, we stole the life of His beloved Son. Right? So God, again, in a manner of speaking, all right, the immutable, impossible God, God had to get out of his comfort zone, so to speak, to do us good. God had to pay a heavy cost to do us good. God had to disadvantage himself to do us good. And John calls this doing us good at great cost to himself, love. This is what love is. God moved toward the unlovely. And that's not the person in the pew in front of you or behind you, that's you. And that's me, that's the guy in the pulpit too. God moved toward the unlovely. God moved toward the needy, the unclean, the untrustworthy. God moved toward the mean. God moved toward the treacherous, the guilty. God moved towards us to do us good at great cost to himself. We had brought upon ourselves the just penalty of the wrath of God for our sin. And God, being the consummate just judge, could not just look the other way at our sin and pardon us, without punishing sin. So God loved us by sending His Son, Christ Jesus, who came willingly in love, greater love as no man than this, to lay down His life in the place of guilty sinners, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. God sent His Son and Jesus came out of His comfort zone, so to speak, into the world, not to improve His own situation,
but to improve our situation. Not in a self-seeking way, but why? To seek and to save the lost. God could have legitimately said, it's not my responsibility. They brought this on themselves. Jesus could have legitimately said, you know what, I just don't prefer the company of fallen men to the company of my holy father and innumerable angels and the splendor of heaven. It's not really my scene. They wouldn't even appreciate it if I went. They'd just abuse me and crucify me. God could have legitimately said, well, I've done enough. They've got light and they've got warmth and food and water and all the other common graces. I don't owe them anything more. And so on and so forth. But he did it. God so loved the world, or as the CSB puts it, God loved the world in this way. That's what the soul means in that verse. That he gave his only begotten son. That's the way God loved us. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see in the giving of Jesus a paradigm of what love is. Love is seeking the good of others, even at great cost to yourself, the way that God saw our good at great cost to himself. That's what love is. The opposite of incurvitous insane. The opposite of being curved in on yourself and always looking at your own interests and improving your own situation and what does this do for me? Love is being like God who gave. Now, of course, someone is going to raise these sorts of objections here at this point. Well, are you saying that we should just enable abusers by staying passively in an abusive situation? Are you saying that we shouldn't even sleep or eat properly? And we should just run ourselves into the ground obsessively helping others without properly taking care of ourselves? Are you saying that we should give the shirt off our back and our last dime and impoverish ourselves so that we are destitute and dependent on others by retirement age? Right? And there's a spectrum in terms of why you would raise that objection. On the one hand, you, you're sincerely trying to figure out the answer. And, it, and it's actually important to think through questions like this, so I'm going to give you a brief answer here in a moment. But I, I, want, I want to call you out, though. I know some of you are asking that because you're not loving enough, and you're starting to feel guilty, and you're trying to figure out how you can weasel your way out from under this imperative to be like God and give. All right? So, to be clear, no, I'm not negating the legitimacy of healthy boundaries established with prudence and wisdom and humility and so forth. And I'm going to digress briefly from the main point of this sermon here, which is that you should be like God in love. And that the Holy Spirit's doing that, wants to bear that fruit in your life, Christian. But I'm going to briefly digress, and I'm going to give you a paradigm for setting limits on self-giving for the sake of others. Let me introduce this first point by saying that, that 
or let me introduce this point rather, this digression, by saying that we aren't the first people to think about this issue. In fact, Paul, in the very next chapter, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, says this. As we have, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now there are two brief things I would pull out of this passage. One is that Paul says, as we have opportunity. And since the opportunity always, objectively exists to do good to someone, the meaning cannot be that every time someone in the world is in need, you must help him. Since that is, like, at this very moment, the case. And it will be in an hour, and it will be tomorrow, and so on and so forth. It will be at bedtime, right? It will be at mealtime. It will always be the case that someone is objectively in need, and in that sense, the opportunity is always there. So Paul can't mean that, since he says, how do we have opportunity? Rather, there must be loaded into that statement, as we have opportunity, the concept that you will not always be realistically able to help. But when you are, right, as you, as you have opportunity, when you are realistically able to help, there are geographic, financial, physical, psychological, competence, restraints, or limitations on our ability to do good to others. This means that you may not be close enough to help sometimes. You might not even be aware of the need, or even if you are, you might be too far away to be able to do anything about it. You may not be wealthy enough to help if the need is financial. You may not be physically or psychologically sound enough to help. Or you might not be competent enough to help. Or in other ways, you just can't help. Sometimes you might not be in a position to help right now. You don't, therefore, providentially have the opportunity. It's not a realistic opportunity that's in front of you right now. And over in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, one chapter before the verse we've used this morning to define love, John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Notice that there is an if there. If anyone has the world's goods, Sometimes we are not in a position to be able to do good to someone. We don't have what they need at the time. At times we simply cannot pay the great cost associated with doing good to someone. The second thing I would like to pull out of Galatians 6.10 is related. By way of reminder, Galatians 6.10 it says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
This especially implies that we do need to prioritize our time and our energy and our money and so forth. We cannot do everything. So if we are to especially do some things, that, that innately involves prioritizing so that we can make sure that we give more attention to one thing than another. And that simply, that, that at least proves the point that some prioritization is necessary. As we think about loving, as we think about doing good to people, there's going to have to be some prioritizing. Jesus even indicates in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6 that there's a time and a place to walk away and stop helping someone. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So the duty to love, even at great cost to yourself, is not to be equated with the elimination of the legitimacy of exercising wisdom, prudence, humility, and all self-preservation. The framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith understood this concept and included in their catechism in answer 99 the following statement that which God forbids is at no time to be done what he commands is always our duty and yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times and so if I can un unpack that or unpack that by illustrating that love requires for example that we never harm someone else but love does not require that we heedlessly and carelessly hurl ourselves in harm's way each and every time that there is the slightest possibility of good being done by it. Love requires that you never steal from someone else, but love does not require uh, that you take no care to lock up your bicycle, and so on and so forth, right? That there are, there are, that's not, that second one is not really a great example. I think you can understand the point of what I'm saying, I hope. Which is that, like, A, there's no way that you could possibly help, say, 100 people in different situations at the same time. Obviously. Right? So it can't possibly be, therefore, your duty to do those 100 things at one and the same time. You're not infinite like God. Which means that you can't be omnipresent. You can't be omniscient. You can't just infinitely give. Sometimes you need to go home and go to bed, and so on and so on. Right? So, so the things that God forbids are never to be done. But the things that God commands are to be done in a way that is consistent with what the Bible says about having opportunity, having the world's goods, prioritizing, etc., etc. Hopefully that makes more sense. This is what happens when I go off script. Sometimes I don't give good examples. Forgive me. So both scripture, which is obviously authoritative, but even the, the Reformed tradition corroborates the legitimacy in principle of the concept which is called in modern parlance boundaries. And so long as one is guided by the principles of the word all the while in terms of how we think about and, and set them, it is therefore a legitimate 
and a prudent course of action to establish and to maintain healthy boundaries while all the while seeking to love everyone as best as we can. So that's our digression, okay? Now with that being said, this is not a sermon on healthy boundaries and wise, sustainable, self-giving love. So I don't want to belabor that point. Simply acknowledge it and, and, and note and, and make sure that I'm not encouraging you to uh, wrongly keep yourself in a, in a situation that you should extricate yourself from or something like that. Now I want to circle back around to our main point and press upon you the fact that the Spirit desires for you to be more loving. Remember in Galatians 5, there is this antithesis between the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh is going to make you incurvitous in sin, curved in on yourself. A fleshly person will be curved in on himself. What do I want? What do I need? What do I prefer? What will improve my situation? What will make me more uncomfortable? How can I extricate myself from discomfort and avoid pain and avoid conflict and avoid difficulty? The flesh is going to make you that kind of person with that kind of paradigm. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposed to one another. And the fruit of the spirit is the opposite of that incurvitous insane. And it's going to be this self-giving love patterned after God's own self-giving love for us. Are you entirely loving yet? Have you reached that milestone where, where now you are the, the, the consummate? I mean, there, there's God giving of himself to love you, right? But then there's you, and I mean, you're a pretty good example of love too, right? You see... You see how ridiculous, even blasphemous it is to go down that line, right? You are not perfectly loving yet, which means that you're not totally like Jesus yet. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, wants to make you more loving as he is working on making you more like Jesus and conforming you to the image of Christ. Until we are free... From being, until we are as free from being curved in on ourselves as Jesus was throughout the course of his earthly ministry until he laid down his life for his friends. Until we are as free from being curved in on ourselves as that, I guarantee you that the Holy Spirit desires to make you more loving. This is not a debatable point, is it? Anyone want to challenge that point? Now let me work out an obvious implication of that. Becoming more loving will necessarily involve becoming more self-giving. And that's the uncomfortable part, isn't it? It's like, it's like when you're evangelizing and you talk about everyone's sinners, right? Like nobody's perfect and people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as you talk about a specific sin, now all of a sudden I was like, who are you to judge me? <laughs> right? Because we're okay with the general principles, not so much the specific applications of them. So I'm a sinner is okay, but hey John, I don't like the way you spoke to me in that situation. I think it was ungodly. 
whoa, who are you to judge? Right? And, and same thing here if I go, okay, the Holy Spirit wants to make you more loving. You're like, okay, good. I'm fine with that. But as soon as it's like, well, this is my, what that might look like. Now all of a sudden that's uncomfortable. Right? So hear me out. You should be looking, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me ask you this question. Whose interests, besides your own, are you looking to? Okay, now I'm not going to call names, and I don't want you to call names out loud. But I do want you to, to list names right now in your head. Whose interests, besides yourselves, besides your own, are you looking to? If you're married, you ought to be looking to your spouse's interests. If you have kids, you ought to be looking to their interests. They need to be on that list. If you have living parents, you should be honoring them by looking to their interests. Perhaps other extended family members also, although situations are varying and unique, so I won't lay any other burden on you beyond what the scripture does. Then those of you who are members of this church ought to be looking to the interests of this church as a whole and to the interests of other members individually and as family units. If you're a member of another church and you're visiting with us this morning, you ought to be looking to the interests of that church as a whole as well as to the interests of the individual members of that church and, and, and the family units of that church. If you are employed, you ought to be looking to the interests of your employer, as well as the interests of your co-workers. If you live somewhere, you ought to be looking to the interests of your neighbors. If you have friends outside of the circles of work, and church and neighborhood, you ought to be looking to the interests of your friends. And if you are a Christian, you ought to be looking to the interests of those who don't yet know Jesus saving. Alright. Now what I would like you to do is compare the list that you drafted in your mind. Where I ask you to, to, to name specific people in your mind. Whose interests are you looking to? Now I want you to compare that list with the list that I just gave you. Alright, do you see it? Do you see a disparity? I think most likely you do. Unless you start to say, well, there's too many people. Man, I, I couldn't even begin to, to list everyone that I'm looking to their interests. I mean, there's my family, there's the church, my neighbors, my co-workers. My boss, all the lost, right? Like if you were doing that, good. You're on the right track. All right. This 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 point is is to it, take it as an encouragement and an affirmation. You're on the right track. But I think for many of you, you probably had like three or four or like half a dozen or maybe one dozen people on that list that I told you to draft up in your mind. But when I start looking at all the different circles of people spheres of people that, that you have a responsibility to look to their interests. 
to do them good. You're going to see a disparity between the people that you listed and the people on the list that the Bible would give you in terms of who you're responsible for. All right? Now, this should begin to show you concretely and specifically how you may begin to grow in love and what it might look like for you specifically to be a more loving person. Now, let me ask you another question. Specifically, what are you doing for the good of other people? In what specific ways are you looking out for the interests of others? Remember, James warns against if you hear about somebody that's, that's hungry and needs some clothes and you say, go, be warm and well fed, right? But you don't do anything, right? That that's not actually what God requires of us. Likewise, we can't just say, well, I'm loving, I love these people in the sense that I have a warm disposition towards them and I wish them well. I hope that they will go and be warm and well fed. Therefore, I love them. Right? This is what, not what the Bible calls us to. In what specific ways are you seeking or working towards the good of other people? How are you helping your fellow church members grow in Christ? What have you done between last Sunday and this Sunday to help someone else in the church grow in Christ Jesus and press on in their spiritual life? How are you helping your fellow church members with their practical needs? How are you doing good to your parents? Whether that's middle-aged folks doing good to their aging parents, whether that's little children thinking about honoring their parents in the context of their home right now. What are you doing for your kids looking to their interests? We've got a lot of young families in our church. What are you doing to look to the interests of your kids? Obviously, there's the... the basic things, providing food and shelter for them, but look, sometimes you go through phases where that's pretty much all you're doing. Alright? What, in what ways are we looking to the interests of our, our, our family members? What are you doing at work for the good of the people that you work with and work for? How are you doing good to your neighbors? What, what's transpired in the last week? where you are, you have done something active for the good of one of the people in your neighborhood. Right? What's your plans for this coming week? In what specific ways are you reaching the lost with the gospel? When I put it like this, I hope you can, you can see, first of all, I hope you're feeling conviction from the Holy Spirit about just how far you have to go. But I hope you're also, you're also seeing not just this generically condemning thing, but you're also seeing some specific ways that if you start to think about, well, well what would be more loving look like? Some specific ways that that could work out, right? If, if being curved in on yourself is what the flesh wants for your life, what the Holy Spirit wants for you, from your life is to be more like Jesus and do good to others in a self-giving way, right? And here's a list of people that really you have some responsibility to love as you have opportunity. And that what it, and you can brainstorm for yourself what it might look like to do specific things 
at cost to yourself for those people. I hope you can also see a path which is kind of hopeful, kind of, um, even if you put it, put it this way, I, I've been using this analogy recently with the situation I've been dealing with personally. If you're lost in, lost in the woods, lost in the middle of some forest somewhere, some wilderness, and you're blindfolded, and you've got no tools, nothing, it's a pretty, it's a pretty dire situation. All right, but if you were to take the blindfold off and be given a compass and a pocket knife and a lighter, all of a sudden you're in a way better situation, right? So you might not be out of the woods yet, so to speak, with respect to becoming a loving person. But I hope at least you're getting a compass and a pocket knife and the blindfold's coming up, right? You still maybe have some work to do. This is the sort of thing we're going to be doing over the next couple of months as we work through this list. How could we actually grow in some of these things that are mentioned, perhaps some others that aren't, as I, as I read through that. Okay? What I want to, to stress upon you this morning is that it's not loving to be curved in on yourself, and that love is actually the opposite. It's doing good to others, even at great cost to yourself, like God who loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'm going to share an example, I'm going to share an illustration of this principle now. It's a quote from a guy named Pendulette, you might know the magician Duo Penn and Teller. And, and Pendulette is one of these guys, he's an unbeliever, and he says this about evangelism. Unbeliever, talking about evangelism. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize, and you say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Okay, that's, that's Pendulet, an atheistic unbeliever. The reason why we don't evangelize, the reason why we don't love as we ought in evangelism or in any other sphere is because we are not loving enough. It is because we are incurvatus in se, curved in on ourselves. We are fleshly, doing what comes from our remaining corruption. What's easy, what's comfortable, what's pleasant, what improves our situation. And when we begin to think of suffering and discomfort and awkwardness and pain and ostracization and conflict and so on and so forth, too many times we are grieving the Holy Spirit and indulging in the desires of the flesh and not doing anything. And the Holy Spirit wants us to be people who are not curved in on ourselves 
but who embrace love, doing what is good for the people around us as we have opportunity with healthy boundaries in place and wisdom and humility and prudence at play, so on and so forth, but love. Maybe you don't actively harm anyone. Maybe, maybe since last Sunday you haven't gone out and kicked anyone in the shins. Alright? But have you been a loving person this past week? Those are not the same thing. Simply not harming is, is part and parcel, like a basic part and parcel of love. But love is so much more. Reject being curved in on yourself. And embrace the spirit-led life of loving, doing good to other people, even at great cost to ourselves. Oh, Holy Spirit, make us a Christ-like people, full of self-giving love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.